Good afternoon, my name is Aaron Bastani, you're listening to Navarra FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's best radio station. Thanks for joining us. In the studio today I'm joined by Neil Lawson. Neil is the chair of the pressure group Compass and author of One Book Among Many, All Consuming, and that's with Penguin. He serves on the boards of UK Feminista and the AV Referendum Campaign Group and was previously an advisor to the former Prime Minister Gordon Brown. Hi Neil. Hello. Uh, today's discussion will focus on the Labour Party, next year's general election, and it's going to really try and hone on this particular question of how radical can or will Ed Miliband be and what might that mean in the subsequent period after 2015 with any prospective Labour government. Uh, but to start, Neil, what is Compass? Why was it set up? And as an organisation, what, what does it hope to achieve? I don't know what it is, Aaron. Um, we're still struggling with it. We, we, we celebrate 10 years. Um, 10 years ago, we started as a group of uh, labour orientated thinkers and think tanks. Matthew Taylor, who was a the IPPR and Tom Bentley, who was at Demos, and Michael Jacobs, who was at the Fabians, and me, who I run a theoretical journal called Renewal. And we were kind of uh, launched as, you know, uh, New Labour's best friends. It's going wrong. We need to tell them it's going wrong and put them on the right path, questioning the third way and all of that stuff. That lot all left and went for jobs in the government and left me holding the baby. Um, And we increasingly became less uh, New Labour's best friends and more their enemies because we thought it was going so wrong. Um, I'd been around ideas for a long time and I knew ideas were important, but I knew political muscle was important as well. So we wanted to set up a thing that had membership, that had outreach, that could campaign and that could do stuff. And we maybe we'll talk about this, but we've evolved fairly strongly in the, over those 10 years, particularly in the last two or three years. Why is it? Uh, well, the, the the things that have evolved uh, have been the recognition that there are people outside of Labour that we agreed with more than we agreed with lots of people inside Labour. Witness our kind of very strong relationship with someone like Caroline Lucas, uh, who shared all of our good society values of much more equality, uh, democracy and sustainability, and our disagreement with lots of kind of effectively neoliberal people within the Labour Party. And so if we wanted to follow our, you know, our Gandhi instincts of being the change we wish to see in the world, why would we, our rule said you effectively had to be a member of the Labour Party to be involved in Compass or a member of no party. So we we, we could include Alan Milburn, but we would exclude Caroline Lucas. We event, we kind of gradually saw and felt that that was just inconsistent with our values and the way our inclusive way of doing things. And we went through quite a tortuous process, um, not tortuous, but difficult process of changing our rules, which the members had to vote for by a two thirds majority to say we no longer wanted to be an effectively exclusive but outward looking Labour organisation. We wanted to include everyone. So this is a big cultural transformation of an organisation. Mm-hmm. A fairly new organisation. Most people joined it because they were in or around the Labour Party and all of a sudden said, actually, we value members of the Green Party, left-wing Liberal Democrats, members of the SNP, Plaid, you know, whoever or no party, as long as you signed up for our good society set of values. There was quite a heated debate. People left over it, but the two-thirds majority was voted on um, and that kind of helped relaunch Compass as a different kind of organisation. So that's the first thing. And then kind of allied to that, the person who organised Compass for its first eight years was essentially a kind of very good, solid Labour-type organiser. And then when he went, we replaced him... Uh, with Rosie from UK Uncut, which was very much outside of the kind of Labour organising way of doing things, much more participatory, much flatter, uh, much more relational, um, and that's changing the culture 
of the organisation. So we've changed the kind of politics and who we listen to. We talk about politics in three dimensions now, at least three dimensions, because we've got Greens and left-wing Liberal Democrats as well as Labour people and and now, you know, increasingly, thankfully, kind of more UK uncutty, you know, kind of grassroots, mm. you know, participatory activism. Mm. So, you know, we're changing quite strongly. And I'll just shut up before you, open, you ask your next question, Aaron. Incidentally, at the same time where... Um, our relationships with people at or near the top of the Labour Party are stronger than ever. We were, you know, we grew up against Blair, probably naively hopeful of Brown, and then quite anti-Brown and where he took things. You know, our members voted very strongly in favour of Ed Miliband to be the leader of the Labour Party. We have a good relationship with him and his office, and we have a very good relationship with John Crudders, who's running the Labour Party policy review. So we have, you know, in a sense, we're, we're you know, inside and outside quite I feel quite strongly oh other people would question that but you know we're carrying off the trick of being you know slightly arrogantly kind of in and beyond labor is where I would describe so I mean maybe something of an equivalent organization in the US it's quite different it's more net based it's much larger in terms of resources and membership but something like move on for instance Mm. move on seeks to act as something of a faction within the Democrat Mm. party as well as being a pressure group as well Mm. as being a a sort of hybrid organization Mm. Speculatively, if there were ever sort of primaries in the UK for Labour seats, do you think that Compass might put candidates forward? Uh, well, uh, all... could it ever? I mean, rephrase it. Is that would it be able to? You know, if there were mechanisms that were more democratic, more participatory, do you think that Compass could start to run candidates within or beyond the Labour Party? What we're trying to do is prefigure the future of kind of radical progressive politics. Mm within the kind of awful, sterile, adversarial, first-past-the-post system we have in Britain, there is no chance and no opportunity to test those kind of boundaries. Mm. And and I think anyone that starts setting up alternative parties, new parties or whatever, you know, while there is some merit in some of it, and mm. I think, you know, what Left Unity are doing is interesting, yep. you know, and the rich kind of panoply that's happening around some of those things, that isn't where I feel, you know, I d- you know where Compass's heart is really. Um, right now, but we are definitely, you know, trying to prefigure the how do you do a sense of ideological, theoretical, grounded, values-based politics um, in a very plural, open way, um, and that's what we're trying to explore, really. Um, and the kind of, you know, there's some interesting tests coming up. You know, what could happen in London? Mm-hmm for the mayoral election in 2016. You know, could you create the groundswell for, it could be a Labour person, it could be a Green person, it could be an independent that embodied a kind of set of good society, you know, politics. So there are, you know, you can see things happening in the future, which might be interesting Mm -hmm. spaces to play. Um, Rewind. I want to go back to 2001. There was a book you co-wrote with a gentleman called Neil Sherlock, um, and it was entitled The Progressive Century. And it was talking around a kind of, a set of hegemonic values around which, you know, left Liberal Democrats, Greens, you know, members of the Labour left or Social Democrats in the Labour Party could sort of coalesce. And also, of course, political independents who might identify as broadly progressive. What happened? Because when you read that in 2001, it it looked like the Conservative Party were dead in the water. And to an extent, they still are. They still have failed to win an election majority since 1992. The incumbent government of today, let's put to one side the fact it's a coalition government, the kinds of policies we're seeing and the kinds of politics we're seeing, increasingly xenophobic, 
misogynistic or not homophobic. That's one. That's one thing we can be grateful for. Seem incredibly retrogressive. So whatever happens to the progressive century? Well, I'm, I'm still very hopeful of a progressive century. For for maybe things we'll talk about in a bit about the zeitgeist the moment, the kind of, in inverted commas, new times that we might be living in or not. What happened with that story was that there was, you know, uh, uh, ongoing conversations between Blair and Ashdown. Uh, there was, you know, quite a number of people, Robin Cook, uh, you know, then Charlie Kennedy. There was a kind of uh, leadership backdrop that said, that kind of regretted the split in the kind of, I would say, kind of progressive forces in British politics going, you know, way, way, way back when the Labour Party was founded. And if 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 I were to put a political label on myself, it would be something like a kind of, you know, liberal socialist. Um, uh, and I regret that split. I think um, uh, someone, I can't remember who, said that um, uh, social democracy is organised liberalism. And I think that's about right. Um, and uh, we were trying to explore what the values base was for a kind of social liberalism, liberal socialism. You know, call it what call it what you will. Um, there were some uh, prospects at the top of the of our parties for that to to have taken off, um, uh, and that was still an op- that was still an option up until two, you know two thousand and ten general election, where for the first time in a long time we've got a hung parliament that things could have happened and the reason that they didn't happen in the kind of centre-left direction and it didn't go in a centre-left direction went in a centre-right direction was you know an awful lot about um, what had happened in the Liberal Democrat parties in terms of the Orange Bookers and an awful lot in the Labour Party about just the kind of rancid arid tribalism of only Labour we would rather be in the wilderness forevermore than ever talk or deal with anyone from any other party. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, and even now you get that. You know, why did you ever advocate tactical voting in 2010? Liberal Democrats are the same as, you know, Conservatives. And I would, you know, I would even now defend, uh, you know, absolutely defend the fact that, you know, a Liberal Democrat, virtually any Liberal Democrat is better than, you know, any Conservative, um, uh, would mitigate the worst elements uh, and Labour, you know, in 2010, you know, did, wasn't interested in a deal, you know. And my worry is, roll on to 2015, I think, you know, I, you know, I hope Labour does very well. Um, I think, it, you know, it would bite, you know, if I was the Labour Party, I would bite someone's arm off or my own arm off for a coalition government with the Liberal Democrats. Mm. And I would be preparing the ground for that now. And my worry is that, you know, that isn't being done and... A, the, the default option for British politics becomes the centre right. We'll, we'll we'll return to that terrain of post twenty fifteen because I think that's really really uh, crucial. I mean, one of the interesting facts that came out of the budget last week was that ninety percent of deficit reduction after twenty fifteen is going to have to come from public sector cuts. Mm. So that intensity, that ratio of tax increases to public sector cuts, mm. is ginormous. Um, I mean. A lot of talk, of course, around the budget was around you know, the deficit being reduced and so on. But we know that year on year, the budget has barely been uh, been touched. Uh, in the financial year to last month, it was down. It was uh, we're in a deficit of ninety billion pounds as opposed to ninety four billion pounds the preceding year. That's before we talk about transfer of assets from the Bank of England and the, the Royal Mail and so on. So that's not moved. And we know that a lot of the deficit reduction hitherto has come out. You know, VAT increase and so on. What's really interesting now is, of course, that they're talking about. Uh, moving the threshold for inheritance tax up to a million. And actually, that looks like a really potentially popular piece of 
politics from the Conservative Party, mm. right? Because they can't offer the middle class increasing wages. They can't offer them better public services. They can't offer them uh, affordable housing. All, all of these things are moving out, uh, particularly on housing and on wages. These are really now moving out of the, of the reach of the middle class, right? There seems something of an erosion of that social contract between the sort of specifically the southern middle class and the conservative party right because they'd vote for them because they could afford a house and that wages would be okay enough to buy stuff mm. that's now going for people under say 40 mm. right there's no reason for mm. people who are you know self-identify mm. their parents were middle class these people now vote for the conservative party and all they can preserve is say well look at least you'll get the equity off these inflated assets which your parents own and the state yeah. won't take that now that seems the only I mean, that's, that's actually very smart politics by the conservative party and the pension move as well yeah that, so, seemed, that seemed very smart politics. So I was just about to say, I mean, that seems to me much smarter politics than any kind of, anything coming out of the Labour Party with regards to what they can offer people who are 35 who are now very, very, very aware of the fact that their living standards will not touch those that they probably anticipated 10 years ago or what their parents reasonably anticipated and enjoyed over the course of the last 20, 30 years. Uh, I agree. I think Osborne is, you know, several steps ahead. None of this has been anticipated. And lo- Labour is, you know, hitting and hoping that the living standards thing, you know, so some vague stuff about living wage and something about, uh, you know, uh, cutting down on energy, you know, bills, mm-hmm. rail fares, etc. I don't think he's going to cut the mustard. You know, some of us laugh about, you know, free money. There isn't any free money. And I don't think it's much of an electoral strategy. Having said that, the really difficult thing is to change the frame of debate to say that the good life and the good society isn't about really those things at all. I mean, that's the, that's the real challenge for progressives to come up with a more imaginative way of living than just a bigger house, more money, a faster car, more holidays, clothes you can't wear, books you don't read, music you don't listen to, you know, etc. You know, the Galbraith said there's many good um, definitions of the of the good life. The treadmill isn't one of them. This is the you know this is the fundamental problem of the crisis of social democracy, which is not just UK based. Is there is not a successful social democratic project anywhere in the world, and there are structural reasons for that. Um, and part of that is that the politics of more, of 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 sharing a greater you know slice of the capitalist cake. Um, uh, is reaching its boundaries, mm-hmm. you know. And until we can redefine, this is why I'm interested in liberalism, notions of freedom, autonomy, uh, control over your, collective control over your life. Unless we can reimagine what the good society and the good life is beyond that social historic social democratic promise of giving you more stuff, how big does the workers' plasma television screen have to be? You know, given the definitions of most people in and around the Labour Party, as big as it possibly can be. It can't be big enough. Until we get off of that and offer a different sense of the good life, the good society, freedom, you know, what it is to be a human being, mm. social democracy is going to continue to be in crisis. OK, but there's, there's two problems here for incumbent social democrats, right? Because you've got, on the one hand, and I agree with you, that's the historical problem of the post-war social democratic kind of politics, is that, yeah, it's talking about utility and maximisation. It's not really giving much of a nod to these very important post-material values. At the same time, I think that's very much a politics of the progressive left that's before 2008. So, like, we can talk about plasma screens and unread books, and that's all true, right? And I remember that stuff, especially with Euphoria, all up to 2007. There's people buying more and more crap they didn't need. Mm. But now we're talking about, look, uh, on an hour-per-hour basis, 
People in their 20s are earning 12% less than they were five years ago. The average worker is about 5-6% worse off than they were before the crisis. Um, things like rent, energy, food, have it, you know, they've just they've ramped up since 2007, mm. 2008. You know, the, the, the price of things like wheat, I mean, it almost doubled in 08, uh, uh, 07 to 09. So on the one hand, that's the problem of social democracy. At the same time, people think their living standards really smash. So how do you combine those two messages? Because I, I asked this of Natalie Bennett last week. Let's say that the next election is characterised by a cost of living crisis, and I think that's not really phrasing it right. It's a crisis of capitalism. It's a crisis of living standards of the global north, which goes back all the way to the mid-1970s, which was temporarily mitigated by financialization, credit, and so on. Now the proverbials hit the fan after 08. How do you align these very important post-material values of, yes, ecology um, and, of course, intersectional issues of power with regards to both race and gender how do you align those with really the real concrete reality of falling living standards without then moving back to that default social democratic politics of we'll give you a bigger slice of the cake yeah well that's a uh, tough ask right yeah i think well it well it is a tough ask and 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 this gets us into the kind of conversation about kind of theories of change and ideas of change and my and my thoughts on this are shifting you know by the minute by the day or or, or whatever um, the answer seems to lie to me somewhere in the place that says we have to live within a society with a set of norms and values which recognises the equal and valued contribution role place of everybody. Until you arrive at that space, uh, it's very difficult to, to work out the way in which any kind of just redistribution can happen. Um, uh, uh, and I think we have to move. I think we have to kind of talk a moral language about what that good society is and about the equal and valid and wonderful place of everyone within that world and then start to talk about, well, what does that then take for them to realise their unique individual potential and, and, and how is that managed collectively? Mm. And so that you get start to then talk about, you know, the redistribution of time, power, wealth etc on a more sustainable and justifiable basis um uh, now you know uh, i'm now going to be taken to task by some people listening saying yeah but that's all about you know capitalist wealth capitalist interest how do you smash that that's going to have to happen forcibly because they're never going to give up they're never going to now I, I, i'm beginning to re you know rethink uh, a bit the, the nature of that kind of of that kind of struggle and what and what that is, um, but I think it definitely starts from a kind of you know a winning the moral argument about what it is to be a human being in the twenty first century mm. and how do we share our lives on this planet more effectively, more sustainably, um, and then we can take a poli- then we can begin to understand a politics of change that comes out of that. I, mean, I was talking to Natalie Bennett uh, last week, and she said that the historical mistake of the left. Let's say the libertarian left, actually, right? So the anti-authoritarian left. The historical mistake of the anti-authoritarian left in the 80s, 90s, noughties, all the way up to the crisis, had been that they thought it was good enough to move into the spheres of social relations and ideas, the third sector, namely, right? Mm. Uh, And that they could lobby their way to social and political change on 
um, holders of public office, regardless of whether they were conservative, liberal Democrat. Mm. And I saw that a lot before the crisis. You know, I did a bit of stuff, like I say, with, as some listeners will be perfectly aware, uh, intern at a place like the Young Foundation, Demos and so on. Mm. And you'd have these Tory ministers come in and they'd be talking a language of progressive change. It was all now, obviously, in retrospect, it was complete hokum. I mean, it, it could not have been further from the truth. Mm. These people are as regret, you know, regressive and as bizarre as, as anybody you'll find in the country. I mean, mm. conservative parties, less than 100,000 members. I think in terms of the likelihood of somebody you meet on the street being a member of the Conservative Party, you know, they're more likely to believe in ancestor worship, you know. And it's, this is, these are currently really bizarre, odd people that now, you know. And so when you talk about the kind of even more reaction elements within the Conservative Party, who are very clear now in the, in, in the ascendancy on issues like Europe um, and, uh, you know, other things, things like family, you know, family tax breaks and so on, marriage tax breaks, you know, they really are a very small section of society. The problem with the left is they neglected power, they moved to ideas, and they thought lobbying was sufficient. And Natalie Bennett said to me, what we've got to realise after the crisis is that actually we've got to take power. And she didn't mean, you know, storming of the Winter Palace. She said we have to run candidates. You know, we have to have political parties. We have to think about big P politics. And I think it sounds like you're about more small P politics, right? Well, I, I, I guess I've spent, the, you know, the 30 years of my political life to date trying to work out how we built a bigger army than their army. What was the what was the the the, the extent of that coalition? How could it be galvanised? How was it orchestrated, and how it was organised so that our army could beat their army? We looked at you know we've all looked at the way the new right organised its think tanks, its you know its mm-hmm. its kind of cultural and um, political reach. How do we learn from that, and how do we replicate that for the left? And increasingly, I'm thinking, how does big, the kind of, you know, given the floods, given the financial crash, given that all of those things are going to be coming back again, mm. how do we do a transformatory politics uh, that is that is lasting and sustainable and, you know, and deep and real? And when you kind of look back on the big moments of the way things have happened, the, the, the you know, the fall of the uh, Eastern Europe, apartheid, uh, you know, uh, gay rights. Um, th- means and ends can't be disassociated. The way that you do things, you know, always influences where you end up. You can't create a good society by having an army that bashes the other side mm. until the other side is defeated and then you take over power because I bet my my last dollar that the way you behave in power is exactly the way you behaved when you got there, bashing people that don't agree with you. And somehow we have to have a way of doing politics uh, which prefigures the world that we want to that we want to be in. And this is going to sound really hippie and really soppy. And people are going to kind of, you know, accuse me of sitting around the campsite and we'll all sing Kumbaya and the world will be a lot better. But I think change comes from love, kindness, empathy, understanding uh, you know, uh, listening, talking, engaging with people that you don't agree with, learning yourself, forming different coalitions, occupying all sorts of different spaces, creating unlikely alliances um, in a messy, complicated, complex kind of stumbling through the dark, as opposed to the reproduction of a kind of grander, you know, Leninist kind of, you know, take of, 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 of power. Uh, and I kind of, you know, uh, I probably disagree with where Natalie's going, and 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 witness. Okay, uh, uh, a couple of months ago, um, 
I was ringing people around going into the height of the floods, saying, look, here is something big happening mm. in the country, like really big. We need a big response to yeah. this. We need a kind of national event which kind of galvanises short-term, medium, long-term responses. Mm. Uh, where's the green movement? Where's the green leadership on that? Now, I'm not saying this is Natalie Bennett, but my response from people of the Green Party was, we're too busy knocking on doors for the local elections. Now, I understand that you know their route to power where they're going to get smashed this way, I'm afraid. I worry even that Caroline Lucas is going to hold her seat in Brighton. Yeah, that's probably unlikely, I think. Yeah, well, I I hope she does. As a Mm. Labour Party person, I hope she does, and that gets me thrown out of the party, Mm. apparently, because she's a brilliant politician. But that kind of notion that we're going to, you know, build up our councillors, build up our MP base, take those positions of power, isn't going to happen as opposed to Nigel Farage, UKIP, who are immediately onto the issue, immediately framing the debate, immediately changing the nature of the of the national discourse over issues. And that's where I would like to have seen the kind of the Green Party, Green Movement, you know, to really reframe the debate. Well, I've got two points. Well, I said, the, look, I said the exact same thing to her, right? I said, where was Will Duckworth, Natalie Bennett, Caroline Lucas? Why weren't they in the southwest with their, you know, mm. their barber coats and their flat caps and their mm. wellies? Because as ridiculous and as kind of indulgent as that was, you know, politically, for all the main party leaders, right? You know, it was still useful. And I, and she said, "Well, actually, I was at, I was at the Thames flood barrier, and I laid out this ten point plan." I was like, "And you know, and because they've got content to their green politics mm. and ecology, they don't think they've got to have the kind of style." And yeah, like, well, you can have both. You know, yeah, it's yeah. not an either or. Here. No, 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 no. You can have both, and you know what? If you have both, you've got more than the rest of them put together. Yeah. Um, and it seemed to be falling on deaf ears. And I, I, I feel actually that was probably the biggest opportunity. Um, for for the Green Party, they've probably ever had, and the fact they didn't take it in a in a in a year where you know you've got a European election coming, where a one point six percent swing will see a tripling of their MEPs. I mean, who's telling them? Where's that? I, I don't like to talk about political strategy because you know on the left it tends to mean various quite quite authoritarian things. But I mean that seems like a real gimme, and I thought they made a bit of a mistake there. Do you know? I mean, you know. So returning to that, you said about Farage. Yeah. Uh, means and ends. Well, that seems that there's a bit of a contradiction here because you're saying that means have to be ends. That's not the case with UKIP. You know, Farage is unscrupulously political in so much as his logic is entirely ends based. You know, he'll say what he has to say in order to help further UKIP's you know grand objectives, which is of course Euro exit, EU exit. So how do you tie those two together? You're saying that means have to be ends, but then you're saying that Farage should inform practice more than somebody like Natalie Bennett. Well, I, well, I, well, I just think that that notion of, of how do you make change happen, it seemed to be a big contrast between the essentially electoral politics of the Green Party mm. and the, the make a big noise, change okay. the debate politics of, of Farage. Yeah. Which one is having, which, you know, who's having the biggest effect on British politics? The people knocking on the doors and delivering the leaflets or the people reframing the debate about Europe, Im- immigration and now the Ukraine and everything else? You know, I, I think I know which one is, 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 you know, gone from zero members to 20,000, 30,000 mm. members and the other one that's just, you know, uh, you know, just bobbing along, you know, uh, not not fashioning very much at all. But, I'm, a, I'm afraid. Yeah, but with UKIP, and this is a slight deviation, but I think it's important. With UKIP, you have to, I mean, for me, I think, yeah, of course, UKIP's important. It's a big deal, but it's also, essentially, look, it's the political extension of a politics that's been increasingly dominant within the British mainstream media for the last 10 years. You know, mm. So UKIP do have that. The Green Party don't have that. If the Green Party had the four largest papers in circulation you know, with their politics, 
you know, then I think, of course, it'd be a different. Uh, of course, of, of course, it's, of course, it's difficult. But when you know, I say this in very commas, gifts come along like the yeah. floods. Then you have to have the wherewithal to respond to that and recognise that this is your moment now. In a sense, again, inverted commas, we're going to be lucky because that's going to come round again. Mm. You know, so next time, can we respond collectively? This isn't just about the Green Party or the Green Movement. This is about every progressive and everyone who wants a kind of a more equal, sustainable, you know, planet mm. um, has to be ready to take that narrative and run with it and have a national conversation about our consumption, about our in- social investment, about the state and the role of the state in, in systematically dealing with these problems, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so I think we just should learn from that and apply it next time more effectively than we did this time. You went uh, a few moments ago, you referred to the history of gay rights as kind of emblematic of um, social and political change. Mm. Uh, and that does seem to be one of the issues where, you know, it's impossible to imagine now a political mm. party that would be mm. gaining membership, gaining votes and yeah. being explicitly um, homophobic. That seems impossible, right? Yeah. But also at the same time, look, the gay, I mean, the gay movement, Stonewall, things like the Stonewall riots and so on seem to have been written out of that history. Um, and the contentious, antagonistic nature mm. of the gay rights movement in the 60s, 70s, mm. 80s seems to have been somewhat erased when we talk about this movement that's entirely uh, placid, peaceful, where ends and means were the same thing, because that's not really true of the gay movement, is it? I mean, it was never like that. I mean, social movements aren't like that. They can be, but they're uh, they're often a kind of collage of varying tactics, strategies, ideas, politics, aren't they? Yeah, I think I think you're probably right, but I think with anything, it's what's the dominant trend. Clearly, there are catalytic moments. There are, you know, there are uh, flashes of light, um, and I think they're important, you know, as they were with a, a, you know apartheid. Um, so I'm I'm not underplaying those. I'm just saying what's the dominant driving overwhelming kind of force which yeah. changes things and that's much as about conversations across you know the back fence in the garden mm-hmm. you know and the way we behave in work in our communities on the buses you know and everywhere else the role of of of, of culture uh you know of, of a whole load of things which make big sustainable transformations happen mm-hmm. um uh, and of clearly it's a mixed bag but actually the thing that keeps propelling it and moving it um tends to be a more a uh, relational, uh, uh, conversational, uh, everyday revolution, uh, as opposed to a kind of. It certainly isn't about political parties now thinking they can inhabit the state and pull the levers and instigate gay rights, stop the floods, or whatever else. The world is now so complicated mm. um, uh, and change is so complex that we're going to have to come up with an equally complex way of dealing with it. So it sounds to me almost like you're saying that. People interested in social change in the 21st century will have a, you know, be more useful to look back at the 19th and the 20th centuries in so much as historical traditions of syndicalism, social movementism are more fertile grounds than the 20th century industrial sort of big trade unions, top down yeah. political parties. Wait, look, the 20th century was the, the century of the centre. You know, the, the, the century of the hierarchy, of Fordism, of big government, mm. you know, of big unions and big corporations. Uh, and and that's the other problem of of uh, social democracy. It's 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 a creature of that age. How do you inhabit those big institutions, pull levers, and do things to people? All of that is now unwinding mm-hmm. as the world becomes flatter. You know, as centripetal forces replace centrifugal forces, uh, and we live in a much more complicated plural world, which you know, social democratic parties just are not geared up. To kind of live in they're tribal they're singular 
they are you know they want to be the only dominant force that everyone must you know uh be satellites around their you know around their planet um and and that doesn't work anymore you know the soviet union's dead the the work you know the the trade union operation is no longer the strength it was there is nothing un, you know there is nothing morally and organizationally underpinning these parties and that's why they're crashing and burning everywhere now how do we take those historic values and go back and learn as you were suggesting some of those stuff from before that kind of centralizing century and apply those to our social media internet you know, etc. You know, many to many peer to peer world that we're in now, mm-hmm. and crucially, have a story and a narrative about the future. Mm-hmm. The left always does well when it has a sense of what the future is and why its values are, you know, a key part of that future, mm-hmm. driving it being part of it. And we haven't had that for a long time. Blair and New Labour tried it a bit, but it was like it was pretty phony. But now I think there's prospects for us to align our values of equality and democracy alongside what you can see as discernible, you know, future trends. Something I've liked to talk about a number of times is a kind of secular crisis of centre-left parties. I mean, you've touched upon this several times already in the show, and we're not even halfway through. You're listening to Navarra FM on Resonance 104.4 FM London. Um, is this secular crisis of centre-left parties, and that's not just in the UK, right? That's the, you know, that's PASOK in Greece. I mean, that's, you know, there's no more, no more kind of intensely yeah. rapid decline than that of PASOK in Greece over the last several years. I think, you know, opinion polls show them like 6 or 7% these days. That was a party of government until four years ago under Papandreou. Uh, likewise with the um, socialists in Spain, the PSOE. The Party Socialist in France looks in big trouble. Even the Scandinavian Social Democratic parties uh, look in big, big trouble. So there's that secular crisis of centre-left parties. And I think what's interesting is that these parties were umbrella organisations for actually quite a wide-ranging number of voices in politics in the second half of the 20th century, right? Mm. Uh, they're in big trouble. But also, at the same time, so is the centre-right, you know? If you look at the big party of the centre-right, uh, you know, even the CDU, Europe's most powerful um, you know, kind of successful political party right now, its membership is in decline. I mean, it's going down over the long term. The long term trend of memberships of all these organisations is in decline. The Conservative Party, three million members in the nineteen fifties, maybe as maybe as as few as a little less than one. I think it's almost it's a gimme there. It's they're, they're less than a hundred thousand these days. Perhaps even you know considerably less than hundred thousand. Average age of that membership is well over an ex- excess of sixty five. I believe somebody told me seventy four. That, that can't be possible. <laughs> but you know, I mean, it's it's, it's getting on right. So the centre right has a big problem as well. Uh, and if you look at, for instance, Spain, you've got this Vox party. They're now moving the uh, Partido Popular drastically to the right to shore up their core vote. Mm. UKIP's doing something very similar in this country. Yeah. You've got the same thing with the Front National in France. Um, Similar organisations actually also in Germany and, of course, Greece with the Golden Dawn. That's different because they're not neo-fascists, they're just fascists. Um, so the, the centre-right, the centre-left both have these problems. Centre-right, however, is being sort of drastically dragged to the further right because of political formations. But you're saying the answer for the left is not to imitate that, but to do something else. So why is that? Well, the, what you're describing is a crisis of representative democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this isn't just a, you know, which then plays out in a crisis of party politics and all the kind of you know Westminster or their equivalent you know structures and cultures um, uh, in other capital cities, um, and this is all part of the unwinding of say of this century of the of, of, of the centre of the hierarchy of 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 a world of deference. All of that is unwinding into a kind of complex plural dispersed networked kind of world 
Um, uh, and it is affecting both parties of the left and the right. But, the, you know, the problem for the left is that, you know, the, the, the left needs a political organisation. The, the right is always in power. Whether, whether they're in office or not, mm. that can help, clearly. But they've always got the media, the corporations, the culture, you know, on, you know, particularly, I would say, the consumer culture on their side, which is driving them along. It's much better for them if they hold office as well. But when we're, you know, when the left is out of office, because we don't have that, at the moment, we haven't had that kind of wider infrastructure. Um, then uh, we're so much weaker. And you're right that the parties, Social Democrat, Labour parties in the past, were broad coalitions of environmentalists, you know, uh, uh, people who wanted peace, feminists, trade unionists, intellectuals, you know, Christian socialists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, as those parties became less effective, hollowed out. Um, because as as they became weaker as as, as organisations, the centre had to control more. We saw that with New Labour. How do you just dig deeper with the same model? You have to have the discipline as you become weaker as an entity to try and crank up the ship, the machine more effectively. And all the people with a view and a say about different things and a kind of you know all that richness clearly got driven out because you had to have the control freak, you know. Um, Millbank tendency, everyone you know towing the line, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, mm. which then just accelerated the process of all of that richness and complexity leaving it, mm. and it, so it becomes more and more hollowed out. So we have a, a big crisis of representative democracy. We have a crisis of social democracy in particular, and that's why we have to prefigure different ways of organising different cultures and different processes. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we've been talking about this for the last sort of twenty minutes, so perhaps it's a good good time to sort of segue into what I'd like to talk about, which was this piece you wrote recently with Uffe Elbeck. Is that right? Is mm. that his name? Danish is a Danish MP. Or? Yeah, he's a, he's a, he's just set up a, uh, the Alternative. It's called the Alternative, which is a new political party in uh, in Denmark. This is so Balgan. It's off the Rick to go. He even wears the jumpers. Um, he was a member of the um, Social Liberal Party oh, right. yeah. and was the Minister of Culture in Denmark. Uh-huh. Um, but he feels all of this kind of tension of old political parties mm-hmm. and he's trying to find new political formations. So you wrote this piece, you co-wrote it, you co-authored it uh, together. Technology has created a flat earth where we can participate as equals. And how I'm just going to quote, humankind is going through one of its rare but profound paradigm shifts. And as ever, it's driven by, t- by technology. From the Stone Age to the Iron Age, from farming to Fordism, how we make and do things has always affected how society operates. So it sounds to me quickly like you guys are technological determinants because you're basically saying that technology defines society and culture. Or well, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it mutually reinforcing? Well, I, th- I think, you know, uh, to paraphrase Marx, you know, we make history but not in conditions of our own choosing. We are political agents. We can act. We can do things. Mm-hmm. But the context within which we do them defines the parameters of what is possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that doesn't make us determinists, but it does say that the technology, you know, f- from the railways to the telegrams to the telephones to the internet to the social media always has an effect on what we can do and how we operate. I think that's, you know, obviously the case. Mm-hmm. And our argument is that, you know, it will be contested, it will be struggled for, but if there is this broadly flattening process, uh, as the old hierarchies give way to um, the platforms of social media, the internet, etc., then at least there is the prospect um, of us behaving in a way which is egalitarian, more egalitarian and more democratic on those flat structures. It doesn't have to be like that. Um, Google might 
own it all or Twitter might own it all. Mm. But in the old 20th century vertical organisations, which were top down and essentially command and control and you knew your place, it was very difficult for um, uh, egalitarian and democratic cultures to develop. Mm -hmm. So the means and ends argument again, Mm -hmm. we see the prospect, at least the prospect of being able to operate and prefigure the good society uh, in these new flatter structures and then accelerate the process to something which might feel universally like a, more like a good society. I'm going to read more of what you've written mm, back at you again. God. Today, <laughs> that's good for us. It's very commendable. <laughs> It'll be links on the website, of course. Today, the world and our ability to shape it is literally in our hands. We can criticise, disrupt, collaborate and share at the touch of a few keys. Transparency and accountability rule... We rule, but only if politics changes too. This is a bit further down. The cycle of frustration and anger deepens, and the old parties will either transform themselves or die, and new political entities will take their place. My question is, why are you so confident that new entities would be necessarily good ones? Because like I said at the moment, it's UKIP that's doing better than the Green Party. And, you know, if we look at the last great crisis of capitalism, after 29 to 33, you know, it's it's the... The, the German National Socialist Party that was the most kind of uh, successful political formation in Europe in response to that crisis. Uh, and they mastered, actually, the contemporary media of the one-to-many sort of platforms, again, the propagandist media platforms of the 20th century, far better than their leftist equivalents did. So why is it impossible to conceive of the right adapting to these new media conditions better than the left? It's, it's not. It's not impossible. As I say, it's completely contestable. Mm. Um, all we're arguing is that it gives an opportunity that wasn't there before mm. because they're flatter, because they can be feasibly, desirably more egalitarian and democratic. It's really interesting. OK, the piece, if anyone flicks through it, is hopelessly, hopelessly hopeful. It's kind of completely optimistic kind of, you know, pitch at saying the world could be different. And, of course, there's lots of caveats and there's lots of problems, etc. What was really interesting, the reaction is that how many people on the left, and I don't mind realism, but the, the people on the left who want despair, who only operate within cycles of despair, mm. it's all terrible, it's all awful. And I don't think the left ever ever makes real progress and really kind of defines and helps transform the world out of a politics of despair. Mm. There has to be a hope that something better is is possible. And 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 we overdid it in the piece. And I it, and I it was it. it was it was, you know, a purposefully done <laughs> mm. to say, look, you know, it, it, austerity is awful. The banks haven't fallen over. The floods are coming. Whatever. We understand all this. But there is a way out of this mm. potentially and it is incredibly hopeful if we mm. get it right. Mm. Um uh, and some people like hope and some people like despair. It's quite interesting what the reaction was. Well, you, I mean, you must have a very, just because of the nature of who you are, what you've done in the last several days, you must have a very sort of wide-ranging sort of set of colleagues, associates, mates. Mm. Some of them, obviously, it must really resonate, and they go, mm. yeah, spot on. Mm. But what do some of the people you know in the Labour Party say when they read something that's kind of, when I say utopian, I mean, you know, it's, it's utopian in a pragmatic sense. It's a useful yeah. compass for how we orient ourselves. What do they say? Well, I think I, I think it was too much for a lot of people. It was too out there. It was too, you know, looking too far forward, asking too many questions. Um, uh, so I, did, I, did, I, I think there's a lot of people it didn't disconnect with. Look, all I've learned, Aaron, over the last 30 years of doing this stuff is that politics like life is a game of kind of, you know, a, a process of natural selection. You know, you find the people that are attracted to you or that you're attracted to and, and you build a network of people that are kind of want to share that kind of space. And, you know... Um, uh, the only thing I would pass on to anyone who's listening who wants to b- build any kind of political organisation, all I would say is just keep spinning the web. Keep spinning the web in a way that is friendly, warm, 
kind and hopeful and see who you can attract who, who will be wants to be part of that network um and you know compass is growing it's developing um uh, I, I feel a sense of energy connectedness if you just look at the number of amazing organizations i spent all my time just like looking and finding new political entities online offline in communities single issue joining up mm. there is so much you know Again, you know, people say, oh, it's not really like that, you know. But I just see so much energy and so much vitality, much of it completely disconnected from mainstream politics. So, you know, so for instance, you know, the people at the Open Data Institute um, in Shoreditch, set up by Tim Berners-Lee to say that, you know, data is what land was in in the past. Mm -hmm. Who owns data? How is it distributed? How open is it? These are socialist pioneers, these people. They recognise the debates about the new commons, you know, the, the, the future kind of areas of struggle and fight. And if we lose those struggles and fights, then they will be, you know, just as the land was, data will be enclosed by the Googles, etc. Now, these people, as I say, I think are kind of socialist pioneers. Mm. You know, they, they don't see themselves as part of the Labour Party or part of any of that kind of tradition. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of all, all over the place, the collaborative, the sharing, the peer-to-peer, the community. Mm. All of these things are happening. Mm. The job, it seems to me, is to work out how you join up and scale up that stuff mm. into something which is the sum is greater than the parts mm. and has a feeling and a mood of owning the future mm. um, and I think that's possible I think that's doable mm. I mean I, just by way of returning to that point you were saying about sort of pessimism and optimism I, I, I actually put myself in the same kind of headspace I think you probably put yourself I, I'm actually incredibly optimistic I'm incredibly hopeful uh, so if I'm pointing holes in anything you're saying it's not because <laughs> I'm one of these sort of you know incredibly negative um, people but I mean that isn't that surely that's the, I mean if you've got you've got you've got sort of technological transformation and I agree with your hypothesis I think generally you've got technological transformation which is leading to social transformation at the moment those two changes or those two lines of change aren't being replicated in terms of um, transformation in politics and polities electoral systems ideas of representation and so on right that's that's for sure that's that's but surely that's the definition of kind of decadence we can have that for a century mm. i mean right mm. you know we can have that for a century and then something blows in 2100 yeah. yeah so it need not necessarily be as kind of as harmonious and as nice and as concordant as you're, as you're, as you're saying is it could be actually a little bit more rupturous than that if we don't have political change because already i see it right if you go to sort of, you know parliamentarians or yeah, they they literally have these people have I, in my you know my experience like limited experience they literally have no idea of what life is like for mm. a graduate in mm. um, a major urban city in the north. I mean, yeah. they, have, they have literally no idea. They have no you know, I know, I mean, I'm actually relatively privileged, right? I'm doing a PhD and I'm in the south and I'm a southerner, even though I come from a working class family. So on. I still got this kind of the tail end of social democracy. Went to a grammar school, didn't pay fees just before. And I was there when it was 1,100 a year. Mm. I didn't pay it because of my mm. family income. So I'm very fortunate, but even I know I'm never going to get a state pension. Yeah. I mean, socialised healthcare when I'm in maybe my 40s or 50s when I really need it, it's going to be effectively gone. Yeah. Um, I'm certainly not going to get elderly care. Uh, I'm never going to be able to buy a house. Renting is increasingly difficult in the only yeah. place where I can find well-paid work, which is London. You know, so I, I, I really question to what extent do they understand already you know, how broad swathes of society have moved beyond like sort of this kind of ethereal politics of Westminster. Mm. I think maybe maybe this is where we disagree. I think that can carry on for a very long time, and that is the definition of decadence. You know, if you think about Ottoman Turkey or something, you could have this kind of like ruling elite. It's already happened. Look at the North. You know, Labour in these by-elections now. 
they're, they're winning on sort of like 30% turnouts and they're saying hey look at us we've done so great mm. it's like, mm. this is an absolute slap in the face to anybody that has yeah. any any faith in democratic yeah. politics yeah. Yeah. and yet they're sort of like jumping you know jumping on chairs and blowing the whistle yeah yeah so so what you're saying is that we don't know that we live hopefully hopefully we live um uh, as Gramsci would describe in the interregnum mm. you know the old is not dead the new is not yet born mm. There's some pretty horrible, morbid symptoms that are arising within that interregnum. And the truth is that we don't know how long that's going to go on for. Um, But if you were walking around, I can't remember what the exact date was, but if you were walking around Berlin, you know, one morning in November 1989, would you have said the wall was going to fall that night? You know, would Mm. you have said that apartheid was going to crumble just like that? The thing about this stuff is that nothing changes until it changes dramatically Mm. and look and all we can do is move the wheel along develop the ideas develop the thinking develop the organization the networks the coalitions so that when the floods happen or the crash you know the financial crash happens or whatever it is Mm. we're in or or the coalition could be formed or you know after an election or whatever Mm. else that we have the wherewithal to kind of make the most of the opportunity of the opportunity Mm. you know uh uh, and we can't see around all the corners because there's too many corners to look around and we don't know how long it's going to take. Let's just keep moving the wheel along. It's one of the reasons why we called the organisation Compass was because the, the, what, the most important thing is it's to head in the right direction, mm. you know, and, and perseverance is the biggest thing that you can have mm. and to be ready when the moment, as ready as you can be when the moment happens. That's all we can do. And I don't, you're right, I don't know how long it's going to take. Are we six months, six years or 60 years away from, you know, a better society or something big happening? I don't know. Let's just keep moving it along and developing, you know, and becoming more confident and more aware, you know, more challenging and better networked. That's all we can do. Mm. I think we've got just about 10 minutes after the show. So I want to move to a kind of comparative analysis here, because what really interests me is changes in US politics. And maybe this is a really wonkish now for any, any audience, right? Changes in US politics since 2006, Right, because the low point of the Democrat Party, progressive politics in the US, was those midterms immediately after George W's second election. The Democrats actually made very few inroads, which was astonishing given they were against a guy who'd been in power for six years. Republicans had both houses. Um, well, the upturns after then, right? So obviously the Obama victory of 08, they did pretty well in congressional elections thereafter, Obama again. But the broader story is this, changes in, issue, uh, changes in attitudes on same-sex marriage, mm. um, narcotics use, uh, primarily for medical purposes, um, on immigration, on I- issues around income inequality. Social attitudes have transformed in the US in the space of the last 10 years. Mm. Um, politics is no longer being dictated by Reagan's moral majority, but mm. is a really, it's a, there's a leftward trend going on here. Mm. And the question is, how far left does it go? I was listening to Bill de Blasio's State of the City address uh, a couple of weeks ago. If you, t- if you told me this guy sort of in 2005 would be the mayor of New York in 2014, I would have mm. laughed at you. Mm. you know? And I think actually there's a, f- a lot further left to go, left for the Democrat Party for sure, mm. right? But if you look at the organisations in the US that have, I think, broadly helped cultivate that ecology, things like from the daily costs to move on to blue state digital to echo ditto, you've got consultancies, you've got think tanks, you've got social movement organisations, single issue advocacy organisations, the lot. And that seems to have really done the job in actually shifting politics left in the US. It's really working, really mm. effectively. Precise the kind of strategies you're talking about, mm. which in some measure imitate that of the new right in the, the 70s. Why isn't the same happening over here? Well, I th- well, I'm not sure it's not. You know, we've got 
you know, Compass is doing it a bit. We run a thing called the Progressive Alliance. Coming out of NEF, you've got this really interesting neon group, um, a new economic organising network, really vibrant group of people. I went to one of their socials the other night, and I just walked in thought it was going to be, you know, two people and a dog and a half a pint of bitter. The room was just packed with young, energetic, thoughtful, reframing, transformative, you know, people. Um, you've got 38 degrees. Now, I think they come from a lot of flack from a lot of people, but I think they do a great job. Mm. You know, they do a... You know, You've got that. You've got the transition town people. You've got the kind of, you know, the community organising people. There are so many different things going on in different places. Uh, and, I, and, and I think it's beginning to bubble up, you know, quite nicely. We need to develop it. We need to join it up. We need to scale it up. But there's so much energy out there. But what's interesting is, like I say, in the US, that's fed into, because I think because the primary system, because there's a federal system of government over there rather, mm. rather than the unitary state. Yeah. Um, with the exception, of course, of devolution in Scotland, but for England as a unitary state, um, that seems to have bled into institutional politics. Over here, that's not happening, uh, for better or worse, right? Because Mm. the the political opportunity structure within the institutions is far more amenable, far more permeable to these things, which I agree also Mm. happen here. But here, the institutions don't seem so willing to absorb them. Uh, well, I, look, the, the, or capable of absorbing. Well, well, right? the well, Labour well, Party can't surely. Well, I, I don't, I don't know yet. You know, it's just really interesting watching. You know, from climate camp to occupy to uncut, how those people are now. You know, moving into the more established places and taking their policies and practices with them. That's interesting. There will be a crop of um, Labour MPs selected at the next election. Uh, who will have a, a much better sense of the kind of conversation we've been having and the, and, and the politics of, of the listeners. Now, that won't be, you know, 50 of them, but it might be 10 or so. Mm. There are people in the Labour Party, like I would say John Crudus and Lisa Nandy in particular, that get a very strong sense of what this kind of politics is. We've got the wonderful experience of Scotland going on, the vibrancy of debate there. You've got kind of uh, the Welsh Labour Party, you know, moving a bit to the left because of the pressure of Plaid. You know, there are, this isn't, you know, they've got some interesting councils doing some interesting things. I mean, not good enough, but but some, you know, Manchester, quite vibrant, Nottingham, Liverpool, Newcastle. You know, they're beginning to get their act together in quite interesting ways. So, you know, I don't think we should be overly hopeful of that stuff. But there's some movement and we should just keep on building the pressure, the examples, the practice, the policy, the joining up, the networking. We just have to keep doing it. Do you not think, I mean, this is the final point, we've got just, just maybe three minutes left. Do you not think that the, the concern is for many, that if you look at something like Charter 88, right, mm. they came up with loads of great policies which mm. New Labour absorbed. Mm. Some of them actually, you know, things like Freedom Ma- of Information. Many of them they did. Yeah, Freedom of Information is one yeah. that actually, for better, they're there and mm. thank God, you know, even mm. though it's one of Tony Blair's great regrets mm. that he introduced mm. the, the Freedom of Information bill. Um, but is your concern that the best people get involved in things like Charter 88 and then it's the kind of... Um, kind of unscrupulous, sort of mendacious operators like Blair, who then rise to the top of the Labour Party or the Lib Dems or whatever it is, and instrumentalise yeah, all of those. Yeah, but that can't happen again. Well, you know, you won't get a Blair again. It can't happen because everyone's too wise to it. Everyone's too aware. And what we have to and look... Do you think that's an extension of technology? Do you think there's too much well, I think, I think, oh, Yeah, I think it's part of that. It's a, it's a great revealing process mm. and and people just seen it and watched it they're not going to see it and watch it again they're wise to it mm. it isn't just the technology so we you know we need a new kind of leadership we need a 21st century leadership which is humble platform building capacity building enabling and people kind of know that they get that they see through all of the kind of you know the leading politicians so you know 
I think, you know, we don't know when it's going to happen. It won't happen with just a spark. It'll happen in all sorts of places, in all sorts of ways, of loose coalitions, of things forming, of breaking apart and coming back together again. But if we can have some kind of threads going through it of what a good society is, a way of behaving together, it's the, it's the, the journey, how we are on the journey to a good society. Mm. Are we nice, kind, collaborative, sharing, understanding, empathetic? And I see this happening all over the place with young people, with older people, online, offline in ways I've never seen in my political life which I think you know gives me some sense of hope well 30 seconds left one last question because we can talk about means I want to talk about ends if you had a genie and it could grant you one political demand uh, what would it be universal free education I mean if there's one big demand what would it be uh, I think I'm increasingly thinking around basic income as being the transformative kind of policy which which, because it goes back to that thing we were talking about earlier, it treats everyone as an equal, everyone having worth, everyone having va- you know some value, and you know, and and, and recognizing people's sense of citizenship and all the solidarity that you need to underpin that. And, and probably, you know, if that was my one wish, it would be that. Excellent. On that note, thanks for joining us. Uh, my name's Aaron Bassani. You're listening to Navarro Media. We'll be back same time, same place next week. Thanks. Bye.